Good evening and welcome to The Source. We start with breaking news here tonight as President Biden will be going to Israel on Wednesday, a critical trip that comes at a critical time. The major announcement was just made by the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, following a nearly eight hour long meeting that he had with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and his wartime cabinet that he has recently formed. This trip for President Biden is going to amount to a massive show of support for America's closest ally in the Middle East. But it is also going to be extremely high stakes, both politically and security wise. Secretary Blinken previewed part of what will be on President Biden's agenda when he lands in the grieving nation. He's coming here at a critical moment for Israel, for the region and for the world. The president will reaffirm the United States solidarity with Israel and our ironclad commitment to its security. The president will hear from Israel what it needs to defend its people as we continue to work with Congress to meet those needs. Aides have told CNN that the president expressed a strong interest in making this trip after he was invited over the weekend by Prime Minister Netanyahu. For more on this breaking news, I want to go straight to CNN's Anderson Cooper, who is live in Tel Aviv. Anderson, obviously, this is a, a massive development, one that we knew the White House had been weighing. It will certainly be seen as a sign of solidarity. But it also comes as President Biden has been warning other groups, other countries, not to take advantage of what is happening on the ground in Israel right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think you can overstate uh, the, the sign of support this is for the people uh, of Israel. And that's the way it's going to be interpreted here by many, many people. Uh, I was speaking to, to families of uh, those who are being held hostage today uh, and families who have lost loved ones today. And they feel very much that Israel is isolated on the world stage. Uh, and something like this uh, will certainly harden many people on the ground here and certainly sends a message to uh, to Hezbollah, to Iran, uh, about U.S. support. Uh, obviously, also the, uh, the the carrier groups that are uh, heading to the region and that are in the region as well, uh, and a rapid reaction force as well, also bolster that that message. Yeah, there's a lot of U.S. firepower that is being sent there. I also want to bring in with the former director of national intelligence, James Clapper, here with us tonight. Director Clapper, I mean, security is going to be a key part of this visit. It's actually the president's second visit to a war zone this year, if you can believe it. And we saw earlier Secretary Blinken, he had to go and shelter in a bunker because air raid sirens were going off as he was trying to meet with the prime minister. How risky is a visit like this in your eyes? Well, it's it's clearly risky. It's not uh, like going to a, a benign non-combat environment. So there, there is that prospect. Um, but, you know, the Secret Service is very professional about this, and they will figure out uh, ways and means of minimizing uh, uh, personal risk uh, to the president. And I, I, I do think that um, it, this is it's a powerful message, as Anderson outlined. But I also think it's an opportunity for the president to uh, uh, counsel Israelis privately about temperance in uh, as they... Uh, consider or plan an incursion into Gaza. Well, when Director Clapper, when it comes to what seems to be an imminent, I mean, we keep using that word. The question is when it could actually happen. Do you think that this visit could, could change the timing of that? Could Israel potentially delay a ground invasion of Gaza if they have one planned? Uh, it, it certainly could. Um, uh, the visit, as uh, and as well as, uh, and I'm still trying to uh, sort my sort my way through uh, Secretary of State Blinken's announcement about uh, 
safety zones or safety corridors. Uh, and I, I had trouble reconciling the creation of those and their operation with an invasion, remembering what a compressed geographical area that is. So um, if this, that may be a good thing to delay uh, the, uh, an invasion uh, for a while. Yeah, he seemed to be talking about a plan to develop what could be a humanitarian area, a, a corridor, obviously two things that we have not seen established yet, Anderson. I mean, those are something that we have, we've we've heard from families who are stuck at the Rafah crossing, stuck at these exits, who are unable to get out of Gaza so far. Those are desperately needed. Yeah, Without a doubt, uh, uh, you know, as you know, uh, go ahead, as you know the IDF had told uh, people in Gaza to, to move to the south. Uh, some, it's believed several hundred thousand uh, people have already heeded those warnings. Uh, the question is, could some sort of zone be structured there with tents, uh, temporary shelters, food, water, uh, access to, uh, to medical care? I suppose that may be one prospect that they are looking at. That would be something that would be coming up through Egypt uh, if Egypt was willing to open up that border. As you know, the President Biden is also going to be meeting with, with the President of the e Egypt, uh, al-Sisi, uh, in Jordan. So th that could be one option if, uh, if Egypt is cooperative on that and, and if that's something that the U.S. thinks it can, it can put together. Yeah, and Anderson, as we were talking about the families of the hostages that you've been speaking with, I mean, tonight you spoke with the family of a young French-Israeli woman, Mia Shem. She is being held, we believe, in the Gaza Strip. She was in a video that Hamas released tonight. I mean, obviously, this is going to be something that's brought up as well, while President Biden is there. What did you hear from her family tonight? Yeah, for her family, uh, for her mom, Karen, her, her brothers, uh, uh, Ori and Eli, this was the first proof of life that they have had uh, that, that Mia is, is alive. They had not had any word. She was at the Supernova Music Festival. Uh, she had called, uh, gotten a call or a text to, to her mom. Uh, but I spoke to Karen a short time ago about how her daughter looked to her. Listen. She's been through um, pain. She's in pain. Uh, she's injured. She's injured. Um, she looks a bit terrified, but she is alive and stable. She's very, very strong. That's why we all believed in our hearts that she's alive, because we knew that she will never give up. I really knew it. The problem is that every time I opened the TV and I saw the numbers, it was very hard to stick to this belief, but she's a survivor. And they are hopeful. Uh, today in a way that perhaps they haven't been before, they at least know that, that she is alive. Yeah, and of course, I'm sure a visit by a U.S. president will only help bolster that hope. But Director Clapper, when you, you look at how difficult it is to get to these hostages, I mean, our reporting tonight is even, obviously there are Americans being held among those nearly 200 hostages that we believe Hamas is holding in Gaza. But the U.S. has limited intelligence on this hostage situation. I mean, how does that factor into President Biden's visit and what he's expected to, to potentially deliver by the end of it? 
Well, I don't know that the visit will have any impact on, I, I, I would, <laughs> it'd be wonderful if it did, but I don't think it's going to be impact on locating the hostages, which is the key piece of intelligence information you need. You can't, it sounds like an obvious point, but you can't rescue a hostage if you don't know where they are. And I suspect these hostages are uh, underground and widely dispersed. And I, I also would suspect there's precious little intelligence on their location. Uh, obviously, the intelligence community, both ours and Israelis, will be pouring over this video for any, any clues, the slightest clues or suggestions as, as to location. Um, I think in this regard, though, the president's visit is also a, a, a message to the families of the hostages. Uh, I think it, it also reinforces and underscores his commitment to freeing them. Yeah, and he certainly said that's a big priority. Anderson Cooper, Director James Clapper, thank you both for joining me tonight. Meanwhile, as Hamas is releasing this first video of a hostage that it captured, which I should note, we are not sharing for obvious reasons. We are not playing that video. We just showed you Mia Shem. That is the young woman who is featured in that video. And you heard from her family what they told that video meant to them, what they said to Anderson. But families across the globe tonight, they are still desperate for any news about their loved ones who have been taken hostage. And that includes the family of Judith Renan and her 17-year-old daughter, Natalie, they live in Evanston, Illinois, but they were in Israel. They were celebrating the 85th birthday of Judith's mother, along with the Jewish holiday, Simchat Torah, when they were taken by Hamas. Their family tells us tonight, and this is a statement from them, they say, we pray and hope that Judith and Natalie are well and healthy, kept captive together, and keep each other safe. We are people of peace. We seek the well-being of all people and denounce violence of any kind to any human being. I'm joined now tonight by Judith and Natalie's rabbi, Mayor Hecht. Thank you so much, Rabbi, for being here. I mean, when you hear this breaking news, that President Biden is going to visit Israel on Wednesday. I mean, does it make you, does it give you more hope that, that Judith and Natalie can potentially be brought home? Thank you, Caitlin. It's definitely reassuring that the United States is so supportive of Israel's right to defend itself and of the need to rescue all these hostages. And of course, it's reassuring that the president is making a special trip to Israel. I want to share, if you give me a moment, a little bit about Judith and mm -hmm. Natalie. Uh, we are a synagogue, a small synagogue in Evanston, Illinois. Judith is one of our congregants. She would come to our congregation every single Shabbos, Sabbath, and spend time with the community. And... Uh, hold our baby in her hands and parade around the house uh, with, uh, with this glee and joy of just being part of a beautiful community and part of our family. And we are devastated, to be honest. I'm holding right in my, in my hand right here a prayer book that is pink because Judith came, wanted to bring a gift for my seven-year-old daughter. And right before she left to Israel, she dropped off this pink prayer book, and in it, she inscribed a little note that states that this is for your daughter, Chana, with love from both of us, Judith and Natalie. The, the, the fact that someone who lives next door to us and is a part of our community is a hostage in Israel makes the devastation and the pain and the grief 
that all Jews around the world are feeling that much more real and brings it home in a way that is so much more a part of our life here, even though we're on the other side of the world in the United States. Yeah, and I know, Rabbi, I mean, you've been talking to to Judith and Natalie's family. How are they holding up? What What have you heard from them lately? You can imagine that this is beyond devastation for them. This is news that they have to process day by day. But more important than that, they're doing everything that they can to try and bring their family members, their daughter and the daughter's mother back home. And anything that they can do to get the message out, they've requested that I help to get the message out, that the world knows that these are honest people, that these are people that are citizens of the United States, a mother and a daughter, a young woman, a young girl who is innocent and just visiting family in Israel. They went to a trip to to Israel for a trip to see friends and to see family and to spend the 85th birthday of Natalie's grandmother. This is a travesty. This is devastation. These are the pain is just unimaginable, and the family is certainly uh, going through the hardest time of their life. Yeah, I mean, you can't even imagine what that feeling is like, especially, I mean, when we're seeing videos like what we're seeing tonight being released by Hamas, these obviously propaganda videos. Rabbi Mayor, here, Meg, we are obviously thinking of all of them and keeping all, all of their family in our thoughts. Please pass that on. Rabbi Mayor Hecht, thank you for your time tonight. Caitlin, uh, if if I may just share just for another moment, I think it it is of utmost importance that all of your viewers understand that this is a war between goodness and evil. The savage murder of young children, of babies, uh, burning people alive and taking hostages, innocent people to a foreign country. And this is terrorism versus civilization. And when people understand what we're dealing with, what we're facing, I think the outrage needs to be something that every human being of moral compass should stand up and should have a forceful voice tell the world, I am here to support goodness. I am here to bring light to the world. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the foremost uh, Jewish leader of, of our times, has made a public plea in times, of, in times like this that we bring goodness and light to the world, that we ask everyone to pray. Please open a prayer book and say a prayer that Judith, Natalie, and all of the hostages and all the people of Israel and all those that are suffering should be safe. And I ask that Jewish men should put on the tefillin and Jewish women, please light the Shabbat candles. We see so many people asking to do good. Everyone can do good. Everyone can pray because prayer makes a difference. And put up a mezuzah on your home. These are the things that will bring light to the world against the darkness and the evil that we are facing. And the more light that we bring, this will make a transformative difference for the world. Rabbi, thank you for that. And thank you for that message. Thank you, Caitlin. Coming up here on The Source, there is more on the military response from the United States and from Israel. One of the biggest obstacles for Israeli forces is this maze of tunnels that lie beneath Gaza, where Hamas terrorists hide, plot, and move their weapons around. What could tunnel warfare warfare potentially look like? We'll tell you next. 
Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Tonight, we are learning that roughly 2,000 U.S. troops are preparing to potentially deploy to Israel. If they were to go, we are told they would provide medical and logistics support, but that's it. Also tonight, a U.S. Marine Rapid Response Force is heading towards Israel, Israel's coast. Already a strike group that is being led by the Navy's most advanced aircraft carrier is in the eastern Mediterranean Sea with another carrier strike group on the way. Here to talk about all of this and where it could be headed, CNN military analyst, retired Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling. Thank you for being here tonight. I mean, in addition to what we just laid out, which is obviously the U.S. doing that for deterrence, but we're also learning tonight Israel is striking what they say are Hezbollah terrorist targets. I mean, what is your concern about where this could be headed, big picture? It could rapidly expand, Caitlin, and that's the thing that concerns me a little bit. There's a lot of forces in the area, a lot of things going on. Israel is looking in multiple directions. They focused on Gaza, but now they're having to deal with terrorists inside of uh, southern Lebanon, which is a normal problem for them. That happens a lot. They've been fighting in, in uh, southern Lebanon for several decades, actually. I mean, one of the, the big things that they do is just watch that area because they do have settlements there. The other thing is the West Bank. Uh, the Palestinians are up, you know, rising up in that area, and they also have to look to Syria. All of this is being... Well, let's just say Iran is contributing to this. But the U.S. forces going into the area, two carrier battle groups, uh, strike strike groups, that's mm-hmm. a lot of ships. It's more than just what appears on the surface of the aircraft carrier and the destroyers and the cruisers. There's a lot more than that. Yeah. The amphibious readiness group coming from the Marine Corps is something that's normally with a strike group. Uh, They provide a whole lot of mission capabilities, everything from uh, amphibious landings to helping this this particular group is special operations capable. Uh, That all the way to non-combatant evacuation operations. Yeah, so we see all of that getting ready. But I mean, what seems the most imminent, and that's still a question of when, is this potential Israeli ground invasion into Gaza. And Obviously, the last time Israel went into Gaza, that was 2014. We saw how that went. But in that, that's when they learned more about this vast array of tunnels that Gaza operates or that Hamas operates out of that is underneath Gaza. Obviously, this idea is that they've only grown more sophisticated. You can see them here since then. I mean, how do they prepare for that? How does that factor into their plan of attack? Well, let's go back to 2014. Uh, In that year at Operation uh, I can't remember the name of the operation. Israel mobilized 70,000 soldiers. They've now mobilized over 300,000. During a 50-day period of time in that operation, uh, they took, Israel took 66 soldiers' casualties, six civilian casualties. The Palestinians took about 2,100 casualties during that period. We're way beyond that already, and they haven't even started the ground operation. We've seen the Israeli Air Force doing significant damage in northern uh, Gaza, and that's only going to get worse if the ground forces go in. As you said, the tunnel complexes have expanded significantly. I mean, by a lot. They've also got more uh, uh, rockets. 
They have all kinds of anti-tank guided missiles. There's indicators that they have shoulder-launched uh, anti-air missiles. So you're seeing Hamas just garner a great many more capabilities than they had a decade ago, and they've been practicing, whereas Israel took their eye off the ball inside of Gaza. Well, and you've seen, I mean, we talked about this, about the difficulty of, of training in other places in the Middle East of, of how to go into caves where terrorists or terrorist groups are hiding. I mean, how does, are they prepared to go into this? Do they have enough intelligence and an understanding of what exactly this complex tunnel system underneath Gaza is going to look like? Yeah, I'm going to say, I'm not going to say they don't but knowing how difficult it is to go into tunnel and shaft complexes, I would say this is going to be really tough, really tough, because it takes just a couple people to defend in a complex like this against literally hundreds. We saw that in Ukraine at Mariupol. Uh, yeah, this is going to be a tough operation, and they need intelligence, which right now they don't have. Yeah, I mean, we saw that from the origin of the attack. Lieutenant General Mark Hurtling, thank you as always for sharing your expertise with Pleasure. us. Pleasure. Thank you, Caitlin. Yeah, absolutely. Up next tonight, some 2,000 U.S. forces that we were talking about have been put on notice by the Pentagon to prepare to deploy potentially to Israel, that Marine Rapid Response Force that General Hartling mentioned there already being ordered to the region. The chair of the House Foreign Affairs Committee will weigh in with his thoughts right after this quick break. As we see the first images of any of the hostages who have been taken by Hamas, a U.S. official is telling CNN tonight that the administration has little insight into the status of the American hostages that we know are also being held in Gaza. And I'm joined now by the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Republican Congressman Michael McCall. Chairman, thank you for being here tonight. On the American hostages, we know obviously Americans are part of this larger group that is being held in Gaza by Hamas. Have you learned anything new about the Americans who are being held in Gaza right now? Know that there are, you know, several of them. I know that I uh, just got off the phone with the ambassador from uh, Qatar. Uh, Jordan's working on this. Egypt, Saudi Arabia, trying to get them out, trying to negotiate with Hamas to free these hostages. We know will be used as human shields uh, when the IDF uh, goes on the ground, which I would anticipate any day or so. And so what are your concerns for those hostages if that is going to be, I mean, we know that Hamas uses people as human shields. If they're still there and they have not gotten out by then and this is imminent, what happens to them? Well, it's, it's very um, disturbing. I mean, I've seen videos of some of the children uh, that they've taken. Remember, we saw the toddlers in the cages and I've seen pictures of Hamas <clears throat> with these, you know, really the two, three-year-old toddlers um, you know, holding them, but knowing that they're going to threaten um, Israel uh, for other conditions. Uh, they want uh, the release of a lot of uh, Palestinian Hamas hostages in Israel. But it's so sick that they use, you know, these little children uh, as pawns in their uh, terrorist uh, fight. Yeah, and Chairman, in addition to, to those efforts, we've also learned tonight that the U.S., is moving a second aircraft carrier that way. CNN is also now reporting that a Marine amphibious group is also headed towards Israel. Obviously, that's a lot of U.S. firepower near a very hot conflict. Are you concerned about direct U.S. military involvement here? Well, of course. We don't want to see uh, troops on the ground here. But uh, actually, what the administration is doing in this case, I, I fully support, and that is deterrence. I think Iran needs to see this. Uh, and, and most importantly, Hezbollah out of Lebanon needs to see us showing us for, a force by the United States 
both in terms of the destroyer ships, the two aircraft carriers, um, and now we're sending special operators to train, uh, not boots on the ground, but to train the IDF as they go into the second phase of the military operation, which will be going door to door to liberate hostages and eliminate uh, the terrorists. Um, I think it's important that we show that force. Well, my colleague Oren Lieberman <clears throat> over at the Pentagon is also reporting that Secretary Austin is preparing for the possibility of deploying 2,000 troops to Israel. We are told these would be in support roles, medical assistance, logistics. Are you okay with that move? Do you think it requires congressional approval? No, uh, congressional approval would only apply if we are sending troops into combat. Um, now, I'm very cognizant of what's going on. I had a briefing in the Situation Room with the National Security Council about this very issue uh, and what would trigger a response from the Congress about, um, you know, a use of military force. And my uh, committee, the Foreign Affairs Committee, is a committee uh, that is responsible for either declaring war or an authorized use of military force. So actually, I'm currently preparing a draft of that in the event it is called upon and is necessary, but most importantly, mm. supported by the American people. It's something that we're all watching closely. Chairman, obviously you're on Capitol Hill right now. There is still no House Speaker. We've heard from Jim Jordan they plan to potentially have a vote as soon as tomorrow. I mean, given the fact that there there is still no House Speaker, that it has gone on this long without Republicans being able to coalesce around one of your colleagues and therefore frozen the House from being able to do anything, including passing aid to Israel. I mean, do you have confidence that Republicans are actually going to be able to get that done this week? Well, I warned, <clears throat> I warned my colleagues, I did at the last conference, but look, this is a dangerous time. Uh, the world's on fire and our enemies are emboldened. I mean, Chairman Xi talked about how democracy doesn't work and I don't want to prove him right. And I think the longer we go, Caitlin, without a speaker in the chair, uh, we cannot govern. So, you know, I've got a resolution, bipartisan, signed by 420 members of Congress condemning Hamas, supporting Israel, but I can't get that passed until we have a speaker in the chair. Same thing with the Israeli supplemental bill that we've been talking about uh, that could include Ukraine and Indo-Pacific and possibly border. Yeah. We can't get that passed unless we have a speaker in the chair. And we really can't play games anymore uh, with fire. And I think fire is already out there. If Jim Jordan does become the next House Speaker, do you think the House will ever be able to pass aid to Ukraine again? I do. In fact, I, I talked to him today. I think he's amenable to a package, the one I talked really? about. Yeah, I think the one that I talked about, he has to respect the will of the conference, right? This conference can't be controlled by eight people. Um, and Jim Jordan seems to have more control over those eight than any. Um, but I, I believe... Um, that, uh, that there will be. I was at the Situation Room with the National Security Council just two days ago talking to the White House about a, a package, a national security package, that is going to be absolutely necessary to pass so that every day that goes by without a speaker is another well, very did, dangerous Did Jim United Jordan States. make any assurances to you that he would pass more aid to Ukraine? <clears throat> he, was, uh, he was open to the fact of joining... Uh, both uh, Ukraine aid to uh, Israeli funding, which is absolutely necessary. I talked to the Israeli ambassador last night. They need $10 billion to sustain 
this war and defend Israel. Chairman Michael McCall, thank you for your time tonight. Thanks, Caitlin. I appreciate it. And back to our breaking news tonight. President Biden is going to be making an extraordinary wartime visit to Israel two days from now. We're live at the White House with the details behind the planning for this big trip. That's next. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Tonight, President Biden is planning to make a historic wartime visit to Israel on Wednesday amid concerns about a wider war happening in the region. CNN's MJ, MJ Lee is at the White House and joins me now. MJ, obviously, this is going to be a message clearly that the president is going to be taking with him, a sign of solidarity. But this is also to send a message to the other adversaries, those he's been warning about taking advantage of what's been happening in Israel in recent days. Yeah, Caitlin, I mean, needless to say, this was not a decision that was made lightly by this uh, White House. We are told that there were, was a lot of furious planning to ensure, uh, first and foremost, that the president can make this trip in a safe and secure way. Uh, we know that the president had expressed a personal interest in making this trip ever since uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu extended that invitation last weekend when the two men uh, spoke on the phone. Uh, this is as forceful and dramatic a show of force that the U.S. can show to Israel. But, uh, Caitlin, really, this is not just about showing that solidarity. It is already becoming clear that there are a number of deliverables or goals that the president uh, clearly has in mind. First and foremost is an attempt at opening that humanitarian corridor so that aid can go into Gaza, so that people that want to leave can leave. There is also the hostage situation. The president has talked about this a whole lot over the last week or so. We know that uh, there are believed to be at least a handful of Americans American hostages in the mix. We still don't know the condition of those hostages. The president has made very clear that that is a top priority for him. And then just sending this message of deterrence to other regional actors uh, in the region and basically sending the message that we don't want this war to become a wider, broader war. Uh, it is also important to note that the president is going to be making a stop in Jordan. And that is a space to watch very closely because one of the leaders that will be participating in that meeting is Egyptian President uh, Sisi, uh, he really holds the key. That is a country that holds the key to making sure that that humanitarian corridor can be opened in Gaza. So clearly a decision has been made that the president himself uh, showing up in the region, making that physical visit is going to make a difference in all of these scenarios. Uh, and I can tell you that uh, this is the second trip, as you know very well, Caitlin, that the president is making into an active war zone. The president visited Ukraine uh, earlier this year. So very quickly we are seeing just how overwhelming Overwhelmingly, uh, events abroad can overtake the president's schedule, the president's agenda just in a matter of days. Yeah, certainly not something they thought he was going to Colorado today. Now we know he's going to Israel. MJ Lee, great reporting. Thank you. And of course, as President Biden is planning for this visit and the White House obviously has so much going into this, we're learning more about what has been happening on the ground, what he is going to learn more about when he's there, the horrors of Hamas's attack and the first responders who were there racing to help the victims as that day unfolded. 
And joining me now is Ellie Beer, the founder and president of United Hatzalah, the largest emergency medical service in Israel, whose volunteers were among the first people to respond to the attack by Hamas. Ellie, I'm so grateful you're here tonight because you're personally there, you're responding to this. Can you just can you just kind of describe to me what you've been seeing? Well, you know, I'm I'm involved with life saving for the last 35 years, I started volunteering on a back of an ambulance when I was 15 years old. And I, my first terrorist attack, I was just a couple of days after starting volunteering, it was a terrorist stabbing people on Jaffa Street in Jerusalem. And if you take 35 years and you put them all combined together of the most horrific terrorist uh, attacks in the restaurants in Jerusalem, Tel Aviv, in the bus, bus bombings, and all the other terrible tragedies that I saw all combined together, it's nothing compared to what I saw in the last 10 days. And the first day was the most horrific. Uh, unfortunately, after being part of this in the first day, and my wife, Gitti, who is a paramedic, and my, my daughters and my son-in-laws were all there rescuing people, seeing little babies chopped up to pieces, seeing how these terrorists, the Hamas terrorists, who are so evil, they just wanted to kill any Jewish person, no matter who they are, how old they are. And they were going from babies to their mothers, to their fathers and grandparents, and then shooting the pets, shooting little parrots just for fun because they were owned by Jews. And I, I remember seeing hours later when we were able to go into places and seeing in these little kibbutzes that are all peaceful, little villages seeing a whole family just murdered and and chopped and the, the situation the conditions that they were in it's when i went out of there and my family my wife went out of there we felt like we just came out of the holocaust that's how we felt after one day of seeing so many horrors that's how we felt how that's how our volunteers felt and it's something i'll never forget to hear you say that it felt like coming out of the Holocaust is, I mean, it's unfathomable. And I know that one of the volunteers even, they were given, one of your volunteers was given two children, two babies whose parents had been killed in the attack. Do you know how they're doing tonight? Who's taking care of them now? Well, Shalom is a hero. One of my volunteers, Shalom, who was a young kid. He's only like 23 years old. And he went in with the special forces into Kfar Aza, which is 60% of the population were murdered, massacred. And he went in with them, putting his life in danger. We were there in the first moments while the shooting was still above our heads. Missiles were flying in the air. And Shalom went in. He heard baby crying. And it was like, it, was, it wasn't real. Like, how do you hear baby crying? Everyone's dead everywhere. These terrorists, when they murdered the mother who went out to bring some milk for her children who were starving in the shelter, the mother ran to the kitchen just to get some milk or some water for the baby, to feed the baby, and the terrorists saw her, and they, I don't even want to talk what they did to her and the type of condition we found her there. And the mother was murdered afterwards. And, and the father ran out to save the, the, his wife, who was a young lady. Him, they just got married about two years ago. And the, the father was shot in his head and shot all over his body. 
And then Shalom, when he came hours later, maybe 16 hours later, these babies were crying for 16 hours. But because of the shooting, no one heard. Hmm. And when the special forces, Israeli special forces came in to the house trying to clear it from terrorists, they heard the babies crying. And they took these little tiny little babies, six months old. They brought him out to the United Hatzalah volunteers who were there. Shalom was holding the baby and he was crying and he was looking at this baby that was starving and he ran out to the kitchen to get a little bottle of water to just give her water. The baby was dehydrated. He could hardly feel the pulse of the baby. The baby was crying for 16 hours. He felt, he told me later when I was hugging him, I told you, Shalom, I'm so proud of you. He said, Ellie, I felt like I was in 1944, 1943 in Europe, just saved little two Jewish babies. That's how I felt. And I can't even describe the sorrow that we feel as, as volunteers yeah. where I had to go to two families of our volunteers who these two volunteers were murdered. I don't know if you realize so many people in Israel know people who are either murdered or kidnapped or injured. Two volunteers of United Hatzalah. One is an Israeli Jew from Kriyat Malachi was murdered right in the beginning. He went to save lives and he was murdered by these terrorists and they shot him maybe 50 bullets in his body. And the second one was an Arab volunteer of United Atzala, Muslim Arab volunteer from Nazareth. Nazareth, you all know from the Bible, he was down there because he was protecting these people who were having, a, these young kids who were having a fun time in this festival. And he went to volunteer to say if someone gets hurt, if someone gets injured, he was there to help them. And when he saw the massacre happening, he ran over to the victim. Instead of running away, he was running over to stop bleeding of these young kids, not knowing that you're talking about hundreds of the most horrific, terrible terrorists in the world, ISIS, Hamas, and they attacked him. And when they found out he was an Arab Muslim, and he was wearing the same exact vest I'm wearing now with the Israeli flag, we're all proud. We have Jews and Arabs working together here in Israel. Volunteers of United Salah, 7,000 mm -hmm. people are working together. Jews and Arabs, Christians, we all work, no difference. We all love each other. And he was running to save people, and they tortured him so much when they heard he was a Muslim. They, 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 we found him only four or five days later. And it was terrible just to see his face because he couldn't recognize anything. Ellie, I, I can't even imagine what you've been through, what your volunteers have been through. And I just, please tell them all that we're, we're thinking of them, that they were so quick to respond on that day and what they've seen since then. Ellie Beer, thank you. We will continue to tell your stories. Thank you for your time tonight. The war in Israel right now is only adding to the pressure that you see on Capitol Hill as Republicans are being asked to potentially, maybe finally, settle on a new House Speaker. There is supposed to be a vote tomorrow. The question is whether or not there will be an actual House Speaker tomorrow. Jim Jordan still whipping the votes. We'll have the latest on Capitol Hill right after this. House Republicans who are without a House Speaker tonight are hoping to potentially change that tomorrow. Jim Jordan won over some more members today who initially were not going to vote for him. But there are still several more holdouts following a closed door meeting tonight. Mr. Chairman, you're 217 locked in? I think so. 
course, Jordan can only afford to lose four votes. CNN's Manu Raju has been doing the math on this from Capitol Hill. Manu, what's the latest on, on where this stands and if Jim Jordan could actually become Speaker Jordan tomorrow? Well, he's still the short the 217 votes needed to be elected speaker, but he's narrowing it, the gap considerably. Remember on Friday, 55 Republicans voted against him in a secret ballot election. Then yesterday I was told there were about 20 Republicans who are ready to vote. No, that is much smaller now after convincing some holdouts, making some insurances behind the scenes, particularly over spending levels, defense policy, and the like. And now it's much narrower. But that doesn't mean that he's there yet. In fact, I spoke to several of these Republicans going in, some of them are still concerned about everything that happened over the last two weeks. They don't want to reward the conservative hardliners who pushed out Kevin McCarthy and later sunk Steve Scalise to replace McCarthy. And others want some key clarity from Jim Jordan, including whether he believes the 2020 election was stolen. You all have a process where I play by the rules and these other people can't, and then they get what they want. That's not American. Americans want fair play. So if anybody's trying to get my vote, the last thing you want to do is try to intimidate or pressure me, because then I close out entirely. If he's going to lead this conference during a presidential election cycle, he's going to have to be strong and say Donald Trump didn't win the election. Now, Jordan previously said, Caitlin, that he would not go to the floor if he was short 217 votes, but he has changed that approach. He told me earlier today that he will, in fact, do that. And the expectation is that this could go multiple ballots, something he also did not rule out, only saying that tomorrow we will elect a Speaker of the House. Hmm. Caitlin. We'll see who that is. Manu Raju, thank you for that update. Also tonight, another development out of Washington. Of course, the First Amendment does not allow Donald Trump to launch a pre-trial smear campaign. Those are the words of the federal judge overseeing his case about what he could say regarding that trial. More on her decision, that's next. Former President Donald Trump is a candidate, a defendant, and now under a limited gag order for the second time. Today, the federal judge who is overseeing the election subversion case in Washington barred him from attacking the prosecutor, Jack Smith, which he has done many times, the court or potential witnesses at the risk of facing sanctions. Trump said that he would appeal that order from Judge Tanya Chutkin. Not totally clear what the future of that looks like. But I should note that the former president is also using this limited gag order to fundraise tonight, something that he has done repeatedly. Judge Chutkin says any consequences if and when Trump violates that order. We'll keep you updated. Thank you so much for joining us. Very excited to now hand it over to Newsnight with Abby Phillip, which starts right now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode. 